Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with a special episode today. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a book review. Uh, I am joined by authors, friends, and advancement leaders, Chris Cannon and Michael Felberbaum. Chris serves as president of strategic services at Zuri Group, and Michael serves as director of advancement systems at Yale University. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us today. So uh, there is a book that is uh, scheduled to be published, I believe in August of 2022, that Chris and Michael were compelled to write. It's called Focus Fundraising, How to Raise Your Sights and Overcome Overload. Uh, and so we're gonna dive into that. But before we do, I want our audience to know who we're talking to. And I've known both of you now for, I don't know, let's round up or down and call it a decade. Uh, and uh, in different capacities, but obviously lots of shared um, interests and relationships at the intersection of the business of advancement and uh, technology systems, innovation, and so forth. So Chris, why don't I start with you? Uh, who are you? Uh, what is the Zuri Group and what led you uh, into this part of the uh, advancement world? Sure, okay, thanks, Brent, really appreciate it. Um, so, my story started in the late 1900s, last millennium. And uh, I just, you know, like many people um, fell into the, the work, worked at the St. Louis Science Center as a manager of research and records and just loved it, every minute of it. Um, the social sector really, I didn't know what it was in my 20s, right? I was in my late 20s by the time I dove into this work and just found myself to be enamored of the idea that, you know, that society and humanity is improved by what you know, healthcare organizations do and what national nonprofits and little nonprofits do and so forth. And so as a result, um, my career, I did a lot of stuff at the St. Louis Zoo. I did nearly everything you can imagine, you know, asked folks for very large gifts and uh, managed events and managed boards and managed campaigns. But my focus was always on advancement operations and technology and strategy. So kind of the, the big picture, but behind the scenes, I was, I was a fantastic COO type um, and I didn't always want to be the, the, the um, you know, front of the house person. So in moving into consulting uh, now at Zuri Group, um, my focus is 100% on advancement strategy through really great operations, really great data, really great reporting, really great structure, program and process improvement. Um, so, you know, very broad. We, we Zuri work with um, lots of organizations. Um, but still not in the, you know, frontline fundraising uh, capacity these days. So um, in meeting Michael, we'll talk about that, that story at Yale in a, a little bit, but um, that the, the story of Zuri in, in Yale is actually the story of how Zuri grew in a way into what it's become, which is a group that just helps organizations raise more money and build better relationships because they have great programs and great process and great tech to help them do their work. So uh, that's a little bit of how you and I think that at the AAS yeah. conference, you know, probably. That's right. So. so a couple of um, follow-up questions. Uh, what is your favorite animal at the St. Louis Zoo? Ooh. So for a long time, there was a black Amur jaguar named Tyson uh, there. He's passed away because, you know, they don't live 30 years. Um, but it was the, at the time when Mike Tyson was a boxer and he, he just looked awesome. He was a beautiful cat. So I'd say uh, the, the Jaguar is probably still my favorite, but I've never seen in person another black Jaguar that I recall. So he's, he's my favorite guy. 
Love it. Thank you for that. Uh, you just get so many fun facts from folks who've worked in pretty much any nonprofit. So I've got to ask. Yeah, it was help. I mean, it helps to have, I, there was not a story I probably don't have uh, after working at a zoo for four or five years. The other thing I have to ask is um, I, uh, in the spirit of personalized stewardship, um, when we were in our physical office environment, I will never forget the delicious treats that that you sent um, our team. It was some sort of special St. Louis potato yeah. chip or something. What what? Give a shout out to that so, brand. Um, everybody should try these chips. Should be on the bucket a, list. A company called now they're called Goat Chips, like the greatest of all time. They used to be called the Billy Goat Chips. And uh, they actually got sued out of existence naming rights wise because of the Billy Goat Burger Place that's based in Chicago. Um, they lost that legal legal fight. So I had to change her name. Um, I, I know the owners, and uh, yeah, I'd probably send a few hundred boxes of those to various folks now. You you and I think Michael were on the early list of when I started to do this as a smaller set, and they they get rave reviews um, and they're delicious. And I'd encourage you to go to. I think it's probably billygoatstl.com. Um, and if it's not, feel free to uh, reach out to me and I'll, I'll help you find them. They're delicious. It's worth it. Michael, can you second that or? I certainly can. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, let's pivot in, uh, in your direction. Uh, tell me about, um, you know, your career path and you've, you've had uh, different, you know, categories of, the world that you've worked in before uh, now um, moving into what is your, I believe, 12th year um, at Yale, but kind of what led you, what led you there? Well, one of my early experiences with nonprofits was actually as the co-director of a small organization called the Empowerment Group in Philadelphia. That got me my first exposure into fundraising and into all aspects of running a nonprofit. I did that for several years until we moved to Connecticut. And then when I um, joined the advancement team at Yale, um, it was it was after having spent several years doing more IT uh, associated consulting and work. So it was a great way to bring back the nonprofit um, operations and management experience I got early on. And then, and then combine it with some of the IT and technical interest that I have. And part of what compelled Chris and I on this project was I also on the side, I, I um, have been a longtime mindfulness meditation practitioner and uh, been teaching for years. And so um, I was part of um, helping to bring mindfulness meditation into Yale for staff and um, and been just an advocate for it over over the years. So I think as uh, Chris and I, and we we connected at Yale on the um, CRM implementation, um, and that was a prime opportunity for us to talk about some big picture topics, nonprofit management related, but also like how do you stay sane in such a right massive massive undertaking as it was at the time michael i um did not appreciate that history and mindfulness and we are actually recording this right at the end of mental health month and um we've we've all probably been thinking and hearing about um uh 
topics like mindfulness over the last couple of years in a way that a decade ago was far less common. And so I'm curious what your initial exposure was to the world of mindfulness and should we expect um, mindfulness packages offered by the Zuri group as part of these uh, CRM conversions that are happening around the world? With Billy chips included, by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> um, so mindfulness has a rich and complex history and we, we, we talk about it a little bit um, in the book. What I think is crucially important right now, personally, and is just catching up with the fact that we've all been going through a global pandemic. Um, you know, just this morning, actually, I was with some folks in the office and we, we took a huge whiteboard and we just um, put the time frame of like starting from 20, 2020, you know, March of 2020 when things went into lockdown and just started, we're gonna just kind of adding memories and, and like, uh, because there's like sections of our, minds that are or sections of time that are just kind of lost because we've been so preoccupied with you know COVID and pandemic living for such a long period of time so I mean I think for me personally that's part of what I'm pretty charged up about right now is helping people deal with just kind of becoming present to where we are now especially when people come back to an office that hasn't changed and everything around them looks the same and they feel like completely different people uh, because they've been through this experience. And um, we have folks listening, I guarantee, who meditated this morning and will meditate tonight. And we have folks who, when they hear the word meditate, they still feel uncomfortable and everything in between. And so for the folks that are less comfortable or haven't yet taken that dive. I mean, there's been so much innovation and investment at the intersection of like mobile technology and meditation and just sort of the digital experiences that I imagine were not uh, common when you first started the practice. But as you think about kind of meditation 101 or just give it a shot and maybe we feel like, I don't know, maybe mindfulness feels less uh, intimidating than meditation because that word even I feel like has become far more common than what would have been called meditation in the past. Like what's the, the on-ramp today from, from where you sit? You must have colleagues ask you that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think often people view mindfulness as slowing down um, and stopping to smell the roses. Um, and I think that's an important aspect of, of appreciating um, and being present and noticing what's happening. But there's been a long tradition back, you know, in the U.S., if you look at like um, even in sports, um, there's been mindfulness and meditation have been at some of the top performing, um, you know, elite teams. Uh, Phil Jackson was a big proponent of bringing it to all his championship teams because it's not necessarily about slowing down. It's more about um expanding your awareness of what's happening and the practice can uh, can help do that um, and I think that like you said the digital technology that's out there now is really really powerful and great stuff for people just who want to give it a try and you know to have a few minutes you know get the com app or whatever I don't want to endorse a particular product but 
my wife is a, um, she saw me meditating for about 10 years. And then she was like, you know, maybe I'll try this thing. Maybe I'll try this Calm app and got the Calm app and now she uses it pretty regularly and, and likes it. No, yeah, I'm, I'm probably ahead, on yeah. that. I'm on that other spectrum, right? Where um, we joke, uh, Michael's a pretty calm dude and I'm like Captain Chaos, right? I've got probably, um, well, I have about 8,700 unopened emails and probably 50 tabs open on my Google uh, Chrome, right? Like that's the way I function. So I, I appreciate Michael's approach so much. I've learned so much. I've, I've improved amazingly. Um, and I, I'm, I'm viewing some of the approach of overload to how do you provide systems and operationalization of efficiency to the noise, right? So um, I really have appreciated learning Michael's approach to this. Uh, and concurrently, I'm finding that while I'm picking up on those things, I've, I've been better able to at least acknowledge, oh, this is what it feels like to be overloaded. Uh, there's a, a phrase we use a lot throughout the book called instant overload, which is we're probably all experiencing this today, every one of us, where you get three text messages, a phone call, three, you know, event pop-ups, all within the span of maybe, you know, when it's quarter till the hour, blah, you know, everything just blows up on you. And how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you let the cream rise to the top? How do you ignore the things that are interesting and maybe super interesting, like TikTok and like engaging and like, oh, I want to look at that neat, shiny thing, but it won't get you anywhere. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't tick off the list, the important stuff. So, um, so much of what Michael does is get at the important over the urgent in the way that he approaches mindfulness. And, and that's one of the things I've just really valued in, in our relationship over the years. Um, so just, just wanted to pile on there that, that you can be me and be completely uh, the opposite side of what mindfulness looks like formally and still get a lot out of it. Yeah. And I'll just say, uh, as we're all kind of disclosing here, I'd probably put myself somewhere right in the middle, but progressing towards Michael end of the spectrum. And, you know, I, I did um, go through the Headspace app. So just to give all the apps uh, their, their various shout outs, I gave the Headspace app. They've got a really nice kind of on ramp, you know, right, start with one minute and then two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, sort of go through some visualization just to understand the why behind, um, you know, why meditation, why mindfulness helps and, and what is it really trying to counterbalance, right? And um, I just recently have been reading a book um, that yeah, it's called Unfuck Your Brain and it is just like in, in over the top, uh, vulgar, but quite useful in um, trying to help frame just the history of fight or flight and sort of this feeling of overload. And, um, you know, when are we like really at risk as human beings versus when does our brain like make us think we're at risk, which, you know, there are like, right, when you think about the stresses of a CRM conversion, which many folks listening have lived through in one form or another, um, let's be honest, like, we're not at risk of dying, but our mind at times can send the signals uh, of the anxiety or the stress associated with truly high risk situations. And just understanding, you know, the, the ups and downs, the dopamine hits, the other, you know, side of that hits, the mobile connectivity that Chris was describing. Um, it, you know, I just found it really helpful to sort of understand what is like the 
evolutionary connection of like why something like, you know, losing a deal at Evertrue or, you know, getting behind on a CRM conversion can evoke these sort of, you know, same emotions that are what people felt when they were like literally running for their lives. Um, And so it's been helpful to just be able to frame it somewhat in that way. So Brent, that was almost our subtitle for that book title was almost a subtitle for our book, but Wiley wouldn't let us. Um, but it's it's an absolutely great point. And there's a lot of brain science um, that we investigated throughout the, the generation. The, the book took shape over kind of a couple of years and then locked in over about a year. But the brain science stuff to me, I found fascinating, right? There are studies that show um, how are that fight or flight component or how much we can absorb compared to how much we're experiencing. Um, there's a guy named Torkel Klingberg that wrote a book uh, called The Overflowing Brain and effectively makes an argument that our cranium size and our brain size hasn't changed in 50,000 years, but we will encounter in a day. My, I don't know if you remember this, Michael, but we would now read something like the equivalent of 76 newspapers a day or some crazy number like that, just because of all the stimulus, right? All that, you know, we're not, we're not out there farming and hunting and gathering. And, and letting kind of nature take its course over a brain, we are being fed video and uh, words at a level that, you know, humanity's never experienced before. And how do you, how do you cope? And a lot of the, the derivation of, of what we wanted to put together is in the advancement fundraising development spaces, right? Like, how do you cope with the fact that you might have 400 emails a day? You, you can't read them all. Um, so what do you, what do you pick? Um, and sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes you pick the wrong thing and it takes 15 hours of your week away and then you're just behind even further. So, sorry, Michael, I, I, I could go on about the brain science piece, but you're, you're a little more versed in that than I am. No, I think these are, there's so, there's such, there's so much out there now about overload and that it's, I'm just glad that it's getting more. It's go. It's getting more mainstream for people to talk about that. And I, I think there's. I haven't seen a lot of studies that have come out about the effects, let's say, of Zoom fatigue or of um, the way we work now, or or like studies on sustained stress over the course of like a a sustained stressful event like a pandemic and remote work um though there may be there may be in like let's say um from other pandemics that have occurred in last decade but it's interesting to me because i think a lot of this is evolving and so i think uh, our understanding of ourselves and how our how we cope with all of the digital communications is it's just going to continue to evolve. So, Michael, I just have to ask um, on that journey from being a solo mindfulness practitioner to it sounds like now leading mindfulness work for your team at Yale. How did that happen? You know, kind of what was the I don't know what were the milestones where um, folks started taking an interest or you became comfortable talking about it and then kind of what was the catalyst to actually say, Hey, maybe we should get the team together and uh, you know, and go there together, if you will. Yeah. It's interesting, right? It's a great, you know, when I, for, I started at Yale in 2000, 
11. And at, I had been practicing meditation for years before that. I probably was exposed to it first when I was like a teenager. Um, but I didn't really start doing like, um, and I sit for like between a half an hour and an hour every day. I didn't really start doing that until like maybe 2007 or something like that. Um, so when I started at Yale in 2011, it was like kind of a weird thing that we didn't talk about too much to too many people about mindfulness meditation. Um, but I had a few close people that I knew also did. It was like a, like a little secret, you know, group um, that we talked to the being well at Yale folks and like the Yale Stress Center and were able to get the mindfulness meditation for staff as a thing. As there was this growing research and awareness that maybe this is a good thing for people to try. Has documented benefits. Um, and so um, it's not a religious thing. It's not a cult of some sort. It's just like a healthy thing that you can do, like exercise. Um, and so that was like 2012 or 2013. Um, then it's just gotten more and more cultural acceptance. Um, I think just everywhere that, wow, maybe we need a break. Like maybe, maybe we collectively need to take a breather. Uh, because there's a lot of things going on and we're trying to deal with a lot of information. And so I feel like there's just more and more cultural acceptance of that. Um, and then in like Chris, when Chris and I started talking, I don't even remember when it was that we started dreaming up something together, Chris, on, on yeah. but was we, like, um, so we worked heavily together from 2015 and 16 and therefore I got a lot of Michael time and I enjoyed working with him. Right. And so I think we, we set out as a, a plan to talk 30 minutes a week and, you know, 2017 worked okay. 2018 was kind of hit or miss. And by 2019, even before the pandemic, you know, we were canceling seven out of eight hours, you know, seven out of eight sessions. So we talk about once a quarter almost, and it was because we were too darn busy and that busyness wasn't a reflection of where I wanted to spend my time. I wanted to talk to Michael, right? Because we had a lot in common and, and just enjoyed each other's kind of thinking. And so around late 2019, just fortuitously, I think we had said, let's let's write a book on the topic of not having enough time because we're not focusing on and, and how can we get you know more focus on what's important over what's urgent. And that led to um, an outline. We, we had a lot of things in place before the pandemic hit. And then, you know, frankly, the pandemic, which has been so horrible for so many people, made the headspace available for me, for example, like not traveling a quarter million miles a year, meant I could think about stuff and I could write more. So we, uh, we wrote for a while. It took us another, I don't know, maybe six or eight months late. Was, I guess it was early 2021. We got a contract with Wiley and we had a pretty fully fleshed, you know, we probably had 40 or 45,000 words written uh, by that point, pretty, pretty baked book, which has changed a decent amount. It's gotten better because I think it, it was more organizational uh, in, in, in focus. Cause I, I wrote kind of the first draft, if you were in you know, the first section and then Michael came in with like 30, I remember like in a month, like 30,000 words, which is kind of a lot. And we, we were like at 77,000 words, which is way more than the, the publisher wanted. And I read it. I'm like, Oh, this is, this is stuff people want to read. They, you know, at the end of the day, nobody wants to read too much about campaign planning. You know, everybody wants to kind of figure themselves out more than uh, their team. Although all of all of what I think we've written is applicable, you know, in, in both ways. So, 
um, yeah, so we we had a, a year. We kind of jammed out the the book, and it's pretty close to being published as we speak right now. But is that your recollection, Michael? It was like right before the pandemic, we were kind of set. Uh, we had a you know so much in common around our thinking that it 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 honestly it's been a um, a breeze and a dream to have a, a co-author uh, in this way. I've, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated having Michael as as my co-pilot on this. Yeah, we, we've had we've had a great time doing it, and and uh, from from 2012 to where like mindfulness was not really culturally accepted or is like a little fringe to 2018, 2019, when we were talking about this project and, and talking to Wiley about it and like putting together advancement and and mindfulness kind of together. And they were like, oh, that sounds interesting. It's just interesting how it has progressed. And I think over the course of writing and over the course of working together and over the course of the pandemic, we've also started to ask questions about like, and there's a chapter in here called causativity, just about how how are how does getting more steeped in mindfulness actually change the way that we do the work? Um, and we're hoping that that starts to uh, raise new questions for folks in advancement. I think what's sort of ironic is that um, hard to argue that the explosion at the intersection of mobile technology and social media has not been one of the primary drivers in overload, stress, anxiety. You see it with studies that have come out around, right? What is it to be a, a teenager today versus 20 years ago? Like everything there, right? On your phone all the time, TikTok, et cetera. Yet I would argue that one of the primary reasons that mindfulness meditation are now far more mainstream today is because of it's like calm and headspace. And so it's like the damn phone caused the problem in the first place. And now it's kind of helping address the problem and raise awareness broadly. I mean, I don't know. That's even my personal journey. I for sure feel that. Do you, um, I don't know if you're a Simpsons fan, uh, either of you actually, but one of my, my favorite Homer Simpson lines is he says, ah, beer, the cause of and solution to all of my problems, right? Like there's definitely this driver that the efficiency, right? I mean, you can get more done. If and Honestly, if you're in a Zoom meeting, um, we will all touch or look at our phones in this conversation we're having right now. It, you know, there's going to be a message that pops up, which triggers it. Oh, okay, I don't have to worry about that thing until after lunch now, whatever, right? Like, we are all that stimuli does allow us to to multitask. Um, one of the things that Michael really leaned into that that I just appreciated so much is really explaining the difference in between multitasking and multipurposing. And that you can uh, there are so many awesome phrases and and like takeaways, you know, pra pragmatic solutions. But one of my favorite, uh, Michael, is is your use of the phrase half tending. So you can attend to something, right? You're there, you're fully present. If you take a donor to lunch, you are attending, right? You're not going to pull your phone out in the middle and say, hold on a second. If you're on a Zoom call learning about, you know, some, you know, Everdrew's new products, for example, you might also be making sure your email's up to date. You might be texting with your spouse about, you know, the, the thing the kids got to do after school, all that stuff. And so in a weird sort of way, it does add to the ability to be productive. I think what 
the notion of causativity that I'd love for Michael maybe to delve into for another couple minutes here, um, that's so important is that you can be productive and not make a damn bit of difference in the work you're doing. You can be busy all day long and not remember what you did at the end of the day. And so the idea of causativity, I view it as sort of the, the intersection of productivity with purpose. And so causativity, I think, is perfectly aligned with what the social sector does, which is, yeah, go, you know, go ask for those big gifts, go help your you know, database be clean enough that you can send out a hundred thousand piece email that, or, you know, or direct mail piece that helps you raise money um, and, and do that with the end in mind. And it's, you know, often productivity is why, well, you know, I, I moved all the widgets today. So boy, was I productive. I, Michael, what, what would you say, you know, between that half tending, multitasking, multipurposing and causativity, is there, they're like a central um, thought in your head about how you view those things? Well, Oh, yes. And also to Brent's point about like the phone being both the uh, cause and the solution. It, I think that, uh, so I, I'll give you a very mundane example because I've been, I've been thinking about the question is working from home good for work and good for home or is it bad for work and bad for home? Um, or is it some combination thereof? Now I, I do both work two days in at Yale and three days home and adjusting to that new rhythm. Um, but I was thinking about how early on in the pandemic, if I had a Zoom meeting that I didn't need to be on camera for, I was just listening to, I'd fold the laundry. And I was happy. I'm like, oh, I can fold the laundry and listen to this thing. There wasn't a real reason I had to be at my desk listening to that meeting. It wasn't that stimulating. So. I could fold my laundry and I can listen to the meeting and I can do those things, right? Like I can, I don't feel like that's half tending because I don't think that folding laundry requires my full attention and the meeting kind of requires some attention, but it's like, it's okay. In the same way that maybe somebody can knit and watch TV or something, it's, it's fine, right? So um, I, I was like, well, this, this, is, this is a good thing. But then, um, now as time has gone on, I'm like, is it that good though? Because I'm thinking about work while I'm folding the laundry. And then when I'm now folding the laundry and I'm not working, my mind is still there. Um, and so I do question how, how often we intentionally or unintentionally half tend uh, to things. And I think it's a choice, but I, I think what's, what's, what, the, what the devices make possible is faster, quicker, you know, and, and so that can be super helpful if we're giving our attention to it intentionally, if we're just kind of sucked into it. And one of the things that we talk about is we call it the tech tug, which is just the like gravitational force that, that phones have that. Like you, it's like on your bed stand, your nightstand next to your bed and you wake up and it's like, I, I have to check that thing. Like, I, I just have to, um, I have to see what happened whatever. So that tech tug is just kind of always present. And then just very mindlessly, we're like in there and then you're like, um, get, saw your email and then you're, then it's just over. Um, so, so I, I, I think that, 
there's definitely, we're, we are not, like Chris and I are not, we talked a lot about this, we're not anti-technology at all. We're both, we both love the tools that we have and find it possibilities endless for how it can uh, make things. But we're, we're, I would say we're pro um, mindfulness of the tool user. I think, look, I think part of the reason that, you know, mindfulness is more important now is because of that evolution that we were just talking about. And the fact that tech tug is there, you know, just think about like life in the nineties, you inherently had mindful time because there was not the pervasive tech tug pulling you. Like we didn't call it mindfulness, but it was just a different period of like that before and after between smartphones and not smartphones. Like you just couldn't do that many interesting things on your phone 24 seven, 365 until 2008. And like, we're now, you know, a, a decade plus in, I think it's taken its toll, which is why we've got to like, but tech isn't going away. The designers are getting better. You know, the hooks are getting more compelling, which is why we've got to be more intentional about saying, all right, we're either just going to go into complete perpetual overload mode, or we've got to carve out some time. For you, it's the 30 minutes to an hour a day. For others, it could be, um, you know, exercise. Like there, there can be other ways, but we, but it's not like if we let the phones control us, like we're not ever going to have that time. And, and, and maybe that's why the intersection of apps and, you know, calm headspace, et cetera, um, is helpful because it, it sort of forces some of that. So let's just talk for a minute. Like who's the book for, first of all, like, um, you know, who is it for and what are the themes? We've already talked about them here that uh, if we've got folks listening who are advancement practitioners, like, what might help them know, you know what, I should definitely go read this versus maybe this isn't the right thing for me. Like what, who is it for? What are the themes that people are going to um, learn about? Michael, I'll go and then you dive in. Um, it, interestingly enough, at times we wondered whether this book was not a segment uh, book because it's applicable to pretty much any human in what you know, Drucker would call knowledge work, right? Um, but because of our focus and imposter syndrome and a bunch of other reasons, uh, we decided to stick with what we really knew knew well. So this is for you know anyone in the advancement development and nonprofit spaces. It's for board members. It's for leaders. It's for folks that are brand new to the business. There are very pragmatic solutions for you individually. If you're, you know, wrestling with being busy um, and, and doing the urgent every day, looking at TikTok too much or whatever, it's also at the organizational strategy level. Like, how do you get to having good enough governance? I mean, governance is a, a very boring topic in a way, but boy, does it help with focusing on the important. You've taken off the board all the things you're not allowing to be urgent or involved anymore because you said, here's how we're governing our organizations, our programs. You know, if you don't have a great gift acceptance policy. You will waste time on some oddball gift that should just be a bullet in the gift acceptance policy, right? So that kind of governance piece and, and those kind of pragmatic uh, components for organizational solutions are also uh, a heavy emphasis. So we think it's it's really for anyone in this the social sector. Um, and we think that particularly people, the irony, which we get fully, uh, we acknowledge in the book, is we want people who are so busy, they won't know how to find time to read this book. 
to definitely read this book because they need it maybe more than others. I, Michael, how else would you embellish that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think of different people that I know and as we were writing it and we interviewed people and we um, did research, we found that it, nonprofit management is, I mean, you're, you're just squeezed all the time with, um, with um, so many different demands, both if you're in a management role and for, for individual practitioners or individual contributors. Um, it's, it's just, it's just constant. We, we refer to it as the constant craziness, um, within the book and rather than the typical advice of how to go from the constant craziness to getting control, we focus more on, there's uh, one of my mentors, David Allen, who wrote the book, Getting Things Done. Um, he talks about two axes. Um, basically of getting control and getting perspective. Um, we kind of went with that, the direction of getting perspective because we, we feel that there's a lot of systems and tools out there for getting control of workload. But the model that we kind of went with has more to do with getting perspective and that's kind of a mindful angle, which is like, how do you reflect on what you're doing? How do you know what you're doing is important? How do you have those conversations? Um, how do you look at standards? Um, because often hidden standards or unclear standards are really, really hard for people. How do you look at expectations and talk about expectations? So we, we focused on, on those elements. And I, our hope, I think, to Chris's point is that anybody who's doing advancement or nonprofit fundraising work or just more generally nonprofit um, management that is just under the gun constantly can read this and get some perspective on how to how to think about how to think about the work a little bit differently. And so when you think about publishing this going live in August, you'll get responses, right? Friends, colleagues, people you've never met will reach out, they'll email you, they'll reach out on LinkedIn. What do you hope they say? Like, what's the dream response um, as you think about publishing this book? Well, I just want to say one thing, because this is Chris's second book. This is my first book. Uh, when I, Chris's first book, uh, Executive's Guide to Fundraising Operations. I get that right, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I, I was like, this is the guy who wrote the book on fundraising operations. Like this is this because at the time I wasn't aware of any other books on fundraising operations and I was kind of getting into the field. It's like this is the guy that wrote the book on fundraising operations. So that's kind of cool. Um, and so when we were do doing this project, I think our hope was we wanted to expand just beyond fundraising operations, think about kind of fundraising management more generally. And we want people to be like, oh, this was just a breath of fresh air. Like I feel more um, like my, my um, stress level has gone down. My appetite has gone up to take on the challenges that are ahead of me. And then I'm, I'm not, um, I've got a different way to go about things. Like I've got a, like a different approach and people start to see that. Um, I think that's that for me, that's the biggest hope is that 
we 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 know and we see so many folks who are in nonprofits just killing themselves day after day. Uh, so it would be really great to see if this gives them a different perspective and, and a different approach. I, I would a couple of things that add one. Um, Michael's sort of mindfulness and uh, visualization. He he wrote some of the reviews as like, wouldn't this be a great? It was an interesting exercise, right? He said this to me would be a great review of our book, and it was. I used it. It helped me. I'm more centered. I can help raise more money. You know those things, right? Um, my my ex- ex- response to that, Brent, is a little bit nuanced because on the one hand, when I met Michael, the first day I met him in person, he actually had my book on like on his desk. And that was, that was neat, right? Like someone read something that you had ideas about that helped influence them. And, and then, you know, he and I've gotten to work together now for uh, quite some time, which has been terrific. Um, the second thing though, is that that previous book had one simple metaphor throughout. It was this notion of a spinning top being balanced, right? So the metaphor in this one is essentially the the Ray's framework, and which you know blends uh, with with all the good Ray's work you've been doing since starting the the conference and so forth in this podcast. Um, and so the idea is a uh, an acronym that tells you how to recognize your point of view, how to assess your standards. Standards are greatly important because your standards are expectation management. If your boss expects you to look at email from you know midnight. Then when you wake up at six, tired, you're going to look at your damn email right away, right? So how do you, how can you change everybody's perspective, right? I try never to send emails on, on the weekend, for example, because if, to your point at the very beginning, nobody's going to die if they don't read my email on Saturday morning. I can write it on Saturday to get it off my brain, but let's move on. So the, the raise piece then moves from assessing to inspiring your efforts. We do this work because it's amazing how we get to help the social sector. Structuring your work. Fourth is really important, and that's kind of where I come in. That's my my you know sweet spot in terms of operationalization and things. And then lastly, like actually evolving your approach, changing your behavior, persuading other people to change. And so when you if you could as a as a team come together, as a quick example, right? Saying it, I we just we're doing this at Missouri. We're growing. We have new folks. I've been getting emails over the weekend sometimes. I'm like, hey, it's fantastic that you're thinking about this, that you care. Let's not you know. Let's just set it set it to send at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. That's totally fine. We don't need everybody spinning and, and, and thinking over the weekend. We need some downtime. So that's an evolution of, you know, realizing all these things and saying, okay, everybody's point of view is they need to get things off their brain, et cetera, et cetera. But hey, let, let, we don't have to create our own urgency. Let's just not do that if we can avoid it. So I'm really, you know, proud of, again, there are a dozen or so really pithy, quick, memorable components here, the tech tug and uh, instant overload and those sorts of things. But the raised framework and how we've built out, Michael's done a great job of this with some coaching examples in the book to, to say, you know, you should run your whole team through a raise exercise and really question, you know, why are you doing it this way? And can you evolve it into a new approach? And the answer is sure. You just have to, you know, do a little work and think about it. So if the metaphor for the first book was the spinning top, maybe this one is just stop the spinning and still have it stay balanced or something along those lines. Um, we, we call it spinning forward, right? So you're not, and, and yeah, it, it's a little less, they're actually, I think more, more useful components in this than the last one. Um, I don't know, Michael, what you would pick as your favorite sort of piece there. I, I think it's, for me, it's the idea that um, the, one of the, the, the final kind of frameworks uh, that, that we present is the idea of maturity models and their utility. 
And I think that maturity model piece is, is going to stick. I think 10 years from now, when, when you know, Michael and I have a chance to look back at this, that the application of all of these things culminates in you know, really getting your organization or you individually aligned so that you don't behave one way here, one way there, and then all that friction and noise lead to you know, angst and anxiety and a lack mm-hmm. of uh, happiness and you know, sort of uh, confidence in what you're doing next. Guys, uh, we need to wrap up, but as folks um, reflect on this, want to stay in touch, I know you're both active on LinkedIn. I would encourage anybody listening to reach out and just mention that um, this is how you heard uh, from Michael and Chris, but um, what's the best way for folks to kind of stay connected with the launch of the book and um, uh, you know, pre-ordering, et cetera? What, what, what sites uh, would you point folks to? Sure. So uh, Amazon.com, if you search for focused fundraising, uh, that's us. That's the best way you can pre-order the book, et cetera. Um, and then again, I think LinkedIn for me is is my um, social and professional network that I'm on You know, pretty much every day, probably too much. Uh, and so feel free to reach out if we're not already connected. And um, thanks for having us, Brenna. This has been just really helpful to, the, the more Michael and I talk through this, the more you know we have other smart folks like you weigh in. I think it just sharpens the pencil on um, the utility of focus fundraising for uh, hopefully, you know, tens of thousands of uh, practitioners like us. Michael, any closing thoughts? Well, I would just, yeah, thank you again, Brent. This has been great. Uh, I, I LinkedIn for me as well. And I would also just put in a plug for causativity uh, causativity.org we every week we publish something called the causative minute um, which is trying to uh, help folks stay focused on what's important and move things move things forward in this in this mindful way we're just looking for for how do we how do we uh, incorporate principles of mindfulness into productivity not as something that you do at your lunch hour right as something that you do all the time well, thanks for elevating um, the conversation at the intersection of this sector. Um, I, I get a lot of what you're saying. It's very general in nature, but it, it's specific. Uh, it's helpful to have um, a perspective that is really, really empathetic to the work that goes on, you know, uh, specific to this sector, social broadly advancement specifically. And then, um, you know, I'm thinking about future race conferences and uh, maybe there's a mindful minute uh, featuring uh, Michael uh, as a uh, guest facilitator, for example, and just ways that we can, again, just uh, make this, um, you know, more and more accepted. And that just like, you know, people, uh, you know, everybody's, uh, uh, you know, tried going to the gym and for some people it sticks and others it doesn't. And everybody should try going to the mental gym too. It's okay. Uh, everybody yeah. needs it. So um, really appreciate you guys. Uh, finding a unique angle and uh, running with it. I wish you the absolute best and we'll certainly do our part at Evertrue to make sure that we can um, elevate the uh, conversation and awareness um, and make sure that folks know about the book. Well, thanks a million, Brian. We appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, everybody. With that, uh, yeah, you know, you never know where the Rays podcast will lead you, but we covered some uncharted territory today. Really appreciate you coming along for the journey. and. please reach out to Michael and Chris. With that, Brent signing off with Chris Cannon and Michael Felberbaum, authors of Focused Fundraising. Take care.